Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff. I'm a dermatologist and adjunct associate professor at Temple University, Department of Dermatology. Today, we are going to be talking about the guidelines of care for pediatric psoriasis. Today, I have two guests who can speak very well on this topic, including one co-author of the recently published guidelines in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. First, that is Dr. Don Davis, who is a professor, dermatology and pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, and also director of pediatric dermatology at the Mayo Clinic. And I also have Dr. Julianne Mann, who is an associate professor, dermatology and pediatrics, and the section chief of pediatric dermatology at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Welcome to both of you, and thanks for joining. So I definitely think that treatment of psoriasis in pediatric patients is definitely not given a lot of attention in our larger conversations, and I'm glad that we have the opportunity to talk about it, and thank you for working on these guidelines. So I just want to get right to it and ask, you know, these were published now already a couple years ago, but what are the, the main headlines? What are the most important changes or things that have been updates from previous thought or previous guidelines? Why don't we start with you, uh, Don? Yes. So thank you for bringing to the forefront that pediatric psoriasis is a condition that dermatologists should be concerned about to help our patients. I think awareness is the most important thing today. About one third of patients who get psoriasis develop it in childhood. Two thirds of cases erupt in adulthood. And considering that the adult incidence is two to 3% of the population, then you can extrapolate that one to one and a half percent of the pediatric population will have psoriasis. And while we traditionally think of it as gut tape psoriasis induced by strep throat, and certainly that can happen, there are multiple forms of pediatric psoriasis and they often go underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed as something else such as subarachnoid dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, a tinea infection, et cetera, because unless it presents as that classic gut tate eruption, with a positive picture of strep throat, oftentimes people miss it. So Dr. Mann, uh, is there anything you'd want to add? Yes, I would just add, I think the new guidelines really highlight the importance of screening pediatric patients with psoriasis for obesity. Because if we think about the other cardiovascular risk factors or, or comorbidities that go along with psoriasis, obesity is really the critical one to screen for, because in the absence of obesity, the data pertaining to cardiovascular disease risk are not that strong. But we know that a child who is obese, who has psoriasis, we really have to be very aware of those down the road risk factors. So I think just calling greater awareness and attention to the importance that dermatologists play in, in screening for, for obesity in, these, in, this, in this population of children. Great. I, I think it is, it's important that we, we focus on some of these possible associations. So actually, on that point, I know, Dr. Band, that you recently are a fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and you've been talking about how we can intentionally incorporate these guidelines, maybe using that 
as an example, which I know you have also talked about in your webinar that you recorded with Kelly Cordero, right? How are you recommending as a case example incorporating guidelines about obesity into taking care of pediatric patients with psoriasis? I think that one of the most important points around any sort of improvement work that we all can do in our practices is is to just think about making one small change. And at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, we often say, what can you do by next Tuesday? And so I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with thinking that we have to do a big overhaul or make a major change, but just one small change. So in the case of screening for obesity, there are many ways that you could do this. In a general dermatology practice, this, this could be something as simple as asking your nurses to do a chart review. And when they're looking at the referring notes from the pediatrician, to just jot down the weight that's in the pediatrician's referring notes. It could be asking the child or the parent how much the child weighs. If you don't have a scale that's easy to access in your office, just ask them and it will be, it will be probably pretty accurate in most cases. Or it could be weighing the child in your office. All of these would be completely reasonable things to try, but just try one of them and do it for a couple of weeks. And then take a look back, even if you're not formally gathering data, have a conversation with your team and assess how well that was working. And um, if it was working well, then great, maybe add one more thing to include in, in your workflow. But if it didn't work, then scrap it and try something new. So I think just recognizing that improvement work, you don't have to have fellowship training or be you know Lean Six Sigma, Black Belt certified. We all can do improvement work. Even those small changes can make a big difference in the lives of our patients. Yeah, I think I can easily personally get overwhelmed when I see all of the different fixes and things that I want to tweak or little misunderstandings and having to pick is a good way of orienting. But in a busy clinic, I think it can get pretty overwhelming. So I think that's really good advice to just maybe focus on one small change at a time. So maybe we'll go back to you, Dr. Davis, start off this next question. For those of us who maybe mostly treat adults, but occasionally treat children, how would you describe what are the biggest differences in how you treat adults versus children with psoriasis? Yes, absolutely. So to highlight and amplify what Dr. Mann said, the link between pediatric psoriasis and obesity and adult psoriasis and obesity is actually stronger for children than for adults. And I think a lot of dermatologists recognize that psoriasis is a multi-system inflammatory disorder that goes beyond the skin and joints and think about metabolic syndrome and obesity. But the data on children shows that the link for children is actually stronger. So I just want to emphasize that point and think that that's a way that we should be more proactive with children than um, the, the typical dermatologist usually is. We tend to be sensitive about weight in general, which is appropriate because we want to be uh, sensitive to our patient's feelings, but we also have to worry about their overall health. And a lot of times when we're taking care of children, we think, well, they can just grow out of obesity or maybe they're on a pubertal growth spurt and they've got plenty of years ahead of them. But we really don't know the cardiac status and what this does to the children over time and if that predisposes them to atherosclerosis as they age. Another key point to recognize our diverse patient population is that the obesity tends to be more central, particularly in children who are black and Hispanic, and that can have a deleterious effects for their overall health. To answer your question more directly, 
I think in, a, in general, we need to be more proactive and have a paradigm shift when it comes to treating children with psoriasis, just like we are for adults. So in the past where we used to try topicals and then light therapy and avoidance of triggers and kevnorization and then go to systemics, I think we need to have a shorter string if you will, for pulling the trigger on going straight to phototherapy with our topicals or adding a systemic medication. Oftentimes we're hesitant to do that, particularly in children because of insurance coverage, parental worry about being on a systemic medicine. Children don't like to take pills or have shots. They worry about side effects that are long-term for children, but we have to weigh that against the realities of having systemic inflammation in a child at such a young age. So as a general gestalt, what I would say is be aware of the diagnosis of, in, of psoriasis in children. Psoriasis scale or, and patches can itch in children. and adults, they tend not to, but in children, they often complain of pain or itch, and that might confuse you and distract you from a diagnosis of psoriasis. Children can have psoriasis in atypical locations that are unusual for adults. For example, they can have isolated facial psoriasis, isolated genital psoriasis or isolated scalp psoriasis. And that might confuse us to think that it's eczema or seborrheic dermatitis. So have that top of mind. And then once you've been able to hone in on the diagnosis, take the time to educate the patient and the parent to understand that this goes beyond the skin, that it's a lifetime condition they need to be aware of. And just push yourself a little further on your treatment decision trees to be more proactive. Don't be hesitant to treat children in the same manner that you would treat adults. So Dr. Mann, would you like to add anything to that? I completely agree with Dr. Davis. And I would add that I think another difference in how we treat adults and children with psoriasis is that I think deciding what qualifies as severe disease in a child, it's really important to, to gauge the psychosocial impact of that child's psoriasis. We know that children are more likely than adults to have facial psoriasis. And when you're, when you're having a conversation with a child about how they feel about their psoriasis and trying to get a sense of how much it's impacting their life, it's very different to have that conversation with a four-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 16-year-old. And so tailoring those conversations to the child's developmental stage is important and asking I always ask my patients, you know, do kids ask you about your psoriasis? And when they ask you about it, what do you say? And I think providing um, encouragement to parents to coach their children on how to respond in social environments is a very important role that we can play. I really like the model that's laid out by a, a nonprofit organization in the UK called Changing Faces. And their model is explain, reassure, redirect. And so I always coach my pediatric patients to explain to their peers, or sometimes it's adults who are asking them, I have psoriasis. And, and then the reassure part is, don't worry, it doesn't bother me. I've had it for many years. And then the redirect is change the topic of conversation. And so I think empowering children and their parents to to prepare and rehearse those responses to social situations that children might encounter is actually really important and sometimes something that families haven't thought about before. Yeah, when I was preparing for this interview and reading the guidelines, this is the sort of thing that isn't included and I think deserves a lot of attention 
just thinking about the impact and how to have those conversations. And that, that's really important. And sort of bring back to something you said, Dr. Davis, you know, also thinking about the disparate impacts on kids from different backgrounds and whether it's racially, ethnically, or socioeconomically with these conditions. And you know, not everyone has the ability to even present to a pediatric dermatologist to receive care and information to even consider all the options. So thank you for clarifying some of those differences. Practically, what are the challenges you find when you're trying to discuss therapeutic options with parents? Do you find that they are most concerned, as you mentioned before, about effects of systemic therapies, about kids being inherent with topicals, that they could tolerate phototherapy? What challenges do you find most common? Yes. Well, the first rule of thumb is that children cannot pick their parents. And oftentimes the child will absorb the thought pattern of the parent. So if you can help the parent stay calm and address their concerns in the office, the child will often align their worries and fears with the parents. So if the parents act calm, collected, engaged, and curious, the child is less likely to be fearful. And I try to relate the therapies to things that children do in their daily lives. So for example, I'll say to them, we all brush our teeth, right? And the medicine comes, the toothpaste comes out of a toothpaste tube. And this medicine for your skin look comes in a tube that looks like toothpaste, but instead of brushing it on our teeth, we're going to take our finger and we're going to put it on our skin. And children can relate to the fact that toothpaste and creams or ointments come in a similar tube and that you can do different things with the application of where it goes. And then I ask the child, sometimes the medicine feels slippery, like when you try to put on lip gloss or lipstick or eat something that's oily like um, a fried chicken tender or something like that. And sometimes it feels more like toothpaste or the consistency of shampoo and you put it on your skin. Which of those would you prefer? And that's my way of talking with the child about creams versus ointments. And when the, when the child reaches an older age, they have more familiarity with the palatability of things. Like, would you like something that feels more like lip gloss or something that comes like Vaseline? or is more like jelly, or would you like something that's more smooth and perhaps feels a little bit like aftershave if they're a boy who shaves or et cetera. So meeting the child where they are with products that are familiar, I think is very helpful. With regards to the UV photo booth, I kind of explain that it's like a rocket ship or a big mirror that has lights like in Hollywood when celebrities go to the movies. And I explain that they'll be wearing fancy sunglasses and then what parts of clothing they'll have on and that their parents can, or if their child is a, a certain age, go into the booth with them. And that it just lasts several seconds and that it's long enough to sing happy birthday or just one verse of their favorite song. And then it kind of looks like a rocket ship. And I explained it in terms that hopefully make it less scary to the patient and the parent. And I explained that the nurses and techs are more than happy to engage the child and have them go in the booth or next to the light panel when it is off and touch the panel and manipulate the buttons when it's off so that they, they're no longer scared of the device. And then with regards to pills and shots, 
We talk about the honesty of not lying to children because that's really important. So I talk to them about the size of the pill or the liquid and methods that can help patients learn to swallow pills or to tolerate liquids, particularly if they don't like the way it tastes. And then with regards to the shot, I often recommend the Buzzy Bee vibrator to be used next to the injection. But I also tell them about how taking the shot versus the pill may make them a little nauseated or fatigued and the timing of when we do that so that we don't interrupt their activities of daily living and all their favorite events with their friends and with school. And those are just my little tips and tricks, but I could always improve. And so I'm looking forward to Dr. Mann's tips and tricks. Thanks, Don. So one of the conversations I like to have with parents when we're discussing right-sizing the child's treatment for the severity of their disease is this challenge that parents have in, you know, we are all as parents, we're programmed to look out for risks or threats to our children in the here and now, right now. And that's our, our, our quickest parental instinct is when we hear about a treatment that might have a side effect that sounds worrisome, our parental protection instincts go up and we think, mm, we don't, I don't want my child to have that. But I challenge parents to think about the other really important role that we have in caring for children, which is to think about the child's future self and the importance of looking out for our child's well-being or our patient's well-being down the road. And that sometimes this fear or worry around theoretical risks of treatments, that they're theoretical, the risks of things that might happen in the future, that we don't want to let those hypothetical worries stop us from treating and addressing the very real and current risk of leaving that child's psoriasis untreated or undertreated. And I think often framing it that way for parents to kind of um, suggest that they look at the risk of to their child's psychosocial well-being, emotional health, and then also in the case of something like psoriatic arthritis, um, they might say, well, my child's you know running and playing fine most of the time now, but it's thinking about, well, how do you want your child to be participating in athletics when in 10 years down the road? And what about when they're an adult thinking about that more long range parental protectionism, I think often helps shift their thinking and can sort of provide enough momentum over that very understandable worry that a lot of parents have around theoretical risks of systemic treatments in children. And I completely agree with Dr. Davis that I think we need to move more quickly towards more assertive therapies in, in many children and that we can't let those theoretical risks as dermatologists hold us back from doing what's right for the child. I think that's, that's important framing that can be used for a lot of diseases when patients are overly concerned about risks that are hypothetical versus the lack of treating a concrete real problem. So thank you for putting that into words. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of dermatologists take care of adults and kids, but likely don't have the comfort that the two of you have in using more assertive, as you put it, or more systemic therapies. What advice do you have for dermatologists about trying those therapies? 
should they consider this doing this themselves or should they try to refer to someone subspecialized like yourself or what misconceptions might they have uh, about them that might be holding them back? Yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Lipoff. What I would say is I greatly appreciate that our adult colleagues recognize that pediatric dermatology is its own subspecialty and that we have niche expertise in the health and well-being of children. So to that, I want to say thank you to everyone for appreciating and recognizing our subspecialty. On the other hand, as we all know, as dermatologists, there are way more people that have skin disease than there are dermatologists to see them. And in a corollary, there are way more children with skin disease than there are pediatric dermatologists to see them. In fact, it's more disparate than the disadvantage that we have with adults to uh, adult dermatologist ratios. So I think of it as the advice I give to primary care professionals relative to their comfort level with skin disease. I think if you understand your own comfort level and then you could refer or contact a friend, we're happy to take phone calls, texts, electronic consultations, televisits, whatever you need so that you can feel comfortable keeping your patients local if that's what you think is important. We're always here to help. You manage adults with methotrexate, you know, children are younger, they have healthier livers, they're hopefully not drinking alcohol. We have guidelines that say how often you should monitor what medications and have lab draws for children. Oftentimes they align very similarly to adults. So in some ways, pediatric dermatologists and adult dermatologists have the advantage of having statistically a healthier patient in front of them. Sometimes they have difficulty having local labs that feel comfortable helping with children, but most dermatologists live in close proximity to a primary care office or pediatrics office that's very used to caring for children. So perhaps what you do is it's not necessarily your own discomfort, but it's the operational logistics around caring for a child. And perhaps you could have the pediatrician or primary care professional clinic that's close to you help with the operational logistics of caring for the child with regards to labs and monitoring. I'll add to Dr. Davis's excellent comments. I think another really useful approach is sometimes to, if if you have a family that's motivated and a child with psoriasis, and you can send to a pediatric dermatology colleague for a consultation and we can sort of get the ball rolling. And then I think oftentimes our general dermatology colleagues will feel comfortable once the plan that we've talked through options with the parents and settled on a plan. And let's say we get them started on methotrexate. Sometimes there are tips and tricks that pediatric dermatologists have figured out over the years or have learned from other pediderm colleagues, such as methotrexate comes in pills. It can be tricky for young children to swallow pills. And I've learned over the years that Cool Whip is a great way to get kids to swallow pills. You can crush the pills or you can even, in the case of methotrexate, they're small enough, you can leave them whole. And a spoonful of Cool Whip, kids kids can just swallow that down in one gulp and it'll go slide right down. And it's very popular. One spoonful of Cool Whip a week is um, seems reasonable <laughs> strategically. And then once we get them started and give those tips and tricks to parents, we can send back to our general dermatology colleagues who um, are often feel very comfortable managing sort of the the in-between visits. And there are many children that I might see once a year for a check-in visit, and I'm co-managing them with a with a general dermatology colleague. So I think that's a nice approach as well. Well, I appreciate the Cool Whip tip. I've never been taught that. I'll share my tips and tricks. I teach children how to swallow pills, assuming they're of the right age and don't have any, any oral pharyngeal swallowing issues. 
um, by Jello because you can start with incremental small amounts of Jello and slowly work your way up to a, a piece of Jello that's the same size as the pill or even slightly larger. And if for some reason the child gets nervous or chokes, the Jello just dissolves and it's liquid and swallows right down. So that's how I get my patients to learn how to swallow pills. And with regards to um, a, a, a slippery luge like Cool Whip Hershey syrup or caramel sauce is my little tip and trick. And that's good for pills. And it's good for solution that tastes poorly because the syrup is thick enough that it coats the tongue and the back of the throat so that you don't have any aftertaste from a stuck pill or from a suspension that you don't like the taste of. And who doesn't like Those... an excuse to take chocolate or caramel <laughs> sauce once a week? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think learning to swallow pills with Jello, I've never tried that, but that's a great idea. I often have parents cut a gummy bear into four pieces, and gummy bears, they're soft, just like the Jello, and they're nice and slippery. And then they work their way up to an orange tic tac, and then gradually up to a Skittle or, and Practicing with candy can be a nice way to kind of get them over that psychological anxiety that sometimes happens with the taste of a bitter pill. I know that when we all hang out, Dr. Lipoff is going to try this in his own home. I see his wheels turning. <laughs> well, I have to say, I actually, just in the last week or so, I took both of my girls, I have two daughters, to see uh, Mary Poppins, a musical production. And so I'm thinking maybe not a spoonful of sugar. But a spoonful of Cool Whip helps the medicine go down. And that's a, a really Absolutely. helpful Absolutely. <laughs> you need to stock up on some Cool Whip, perhaps. So I have a couple more questions. And then I want to give back your time for and thank you for giving some of your evening to help teach dermatologists how to think about these patients. I'm wondering, have your therapeutic ladders changed? Are you using more therapies that are pills and systemics? I guess you both have different career trajectories, but are there new developments that are shifting you in any direction? I think what you're implying, which is totally fine, is that I'm just older than Dr. Mann, <laughs> which I'll take. It's not a problem. We're all 26 in our head as dermatologists. I'm still wearing my sunscreen. But what I would say is that working on the psoriasis guidelines really taught me to consider advanced therapy kind of not as the second and third step, but really as step and a half and second step. So I think what I did is I collapsed my pyramid from being three layers to really being two. And just like, for example, with severe acne, instead of going through a long trial and then eventually getting to isotretinoin or for severe atopic dermatitis and trying you know, patch testing and wet wraps, and then eventually getting to systemics, I'm just more likely to skip the middle zone in patients who are moderate to severe, because I think it's the right thing to do. And I think we have enough evidence to prove that it's very helpful. So I use methotrexate more robustly. I sign people up for th phototherapy more actively. I send people home with more home phototherapy lights, especially if they have geographic constraints. And I'm more likely to use biologics in children earlier and younger than I would have in the past. And I can say that it's a similar principle for atopic dermatitis. I'm very excited to see what the world of JAK inhibitors has uh, for us as time goes on over the next several years. Of course, we're learning more about JAK inhibitors as time goes on with regards to their side effect profile and their uses. And we're probably going to learn about things that we had no idea at this moment in time would be of relevance. But it appears that JAK inhibitors have 
a real niche space in dermatology to help a lot of patients. And what can be topical formulations versus systemic is yet to be known. But I, it's really exciting, the drug development. And I just want to shout out to all the researchers who are working very hard on medications in dermatology because we're a small specialty. But I especially also want to thank researchers and companies who take the time to include children in their studies so that we can help them sooner. Because oftentimes in the past, we would say, well, it works in adults, but we really don't know what it does in kids. And we didn't have data. And we really need data and our children deserve research just as much as the adults. So I just want to shout out to pediatric research and thank people who are engaging in research in the peds community. I'll echo what Dr. Davis's comments. I think treating my pediatric patients with psoriasis now versus 10 years ago, I progressed much more quickly up the therapeutic ladder. And practically speaking, it is unfortunately the case that many insurances, particularly Medicaid, will often mandate a trial of uh, an oral immunosuppressive like methotrexate or cyclosporin. And I tell parents that up front and I generally use an agent like that for the minimum required amount of time and see the patient back at say, you know, week six to eight after starting methotrexate. I also use pretty moderate doses right off the bat. So in children, often 0.5 mg per keg per week per dose, you know, every seven days. And, um, and if at week six to eight, I'm not seeing really visible improvement, then I, I move right on to the next therapeutic step. I think I'm just like Dr. Davis, we used to sort of do any one treatment for a number of months. And now I progress much more quickly because I think it's the right thing to do. And biologics are very well tolerated in children and particularly with ustekinumab because one injection every 12 weeks is pretty fantastic for our pediatric patients. So I'm much more assertive about getting to that level of treatment quickly. And I'm also strategically, if that child is experiencing any amount of fatigue or nausea, I know that is a side effect and say that they're, you know, if it's impacting their sports or their school, I say that they're not tolerating it well and we move right on. I, I do that pretty quickly. You're both talking about your comfort level increasing with more experience with using these systemic therapies. And you also previously talked about the importance of not over-focusing on theoretical risks versus concrete benefits in the here and now. But are there any adverse events, risks, side effects that you would want to highlight and point out that you pay most attention to? So I do talk with families. We like to think that children are wholly innocent, but I do have a discussion with um, families of children that are on methotrexate, male or female, after the age of about 12, about alcohol intake. I also have discussions with them about fertility risk and, and in case somebody were to accidentally get pregnant if they were a female and, and have had menarche, because a lot of adolescents do have sexual intercourse. With regards to biologics, we try to talk them into this drug to help them with their psoriasis. And then I have to warn them that paradoxically, they could actually get a psoriasis rash from their psoriasis medicine. And then sometimes, you know, there's a very tight link and it particularly tends to happen in my patient population, I don't know why, between inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis. And so I've had a lot of patients that have had psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease concomitantly. And based on the timing of which one erupts when, 
because sometimes these children have IBD and it's asymptomatic and they don't have any sort of markers, they can attribute their IBD to initiating the medicines, which is paradoxical, of course, because they probably had it all along and didn't know. And the medicine should be helping them. But sometimes, you know, we struggle with maintaining a balance between healthy gut and healthy skin. And then if you have a psoriasis form eruption from the drug, that can make it very complicated. And for patients who have known IBD and psoriasis and start a biologic, if, they, if their bowel is quiet and they've had a long journey with their GI doctors and they're finally eating and they finally feel normal again, and then all of a sudden their skin is not responding, it's really hard as the dermatologist to, to discuss, but it's really important. So do you want to try a different medication systemically? Your bowel's happy, you're eating, you're going to school and your skin doesn't look so hot. So let's add some topicals, let's try some light, but sometimes we end up changing the systemic medicine to help the skin, just like we would if it's the bowel. And so I think it's really those patients with comorbidities that I struggle with the most. I'll add, I think one unique feature in caring for children with psoriasis when you're considering systemic therapies is it is also important to be aware of their childhood vaccine schedule and especially between the ages of four and six, that's a time when most children are receiving their second dose of the MMRV vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine. And it is important if, if a child is approaching the age when they'll need that second MMRV dose, and I'm contemplating starting any sort of immunosuppressive therapy, I always make sure they get that vaccine first and then wait a month and then start them on immunosuppressive therapy. As with adults, I think it's important with methotrexate to talk to parents about now that children are able to get boosters for COVID, to think about the timing of those things as well. And then one more thing about methotrexate is that I think I've learned over the years that recommending that children take a folate gummy, which is often like a prenatal gummy that has the correct amount of folate in it, the compliance is a lot better with that because I think some kids drop off with taking their folic acid and I've had a couple cases of white drops in white blood cell, red blood cell, and platelet count that we figured out were because the child had stopped taking their folic acid. So just having that on the radar and thinking about a, a kid-friendly version of that can help increase adherence to that regimen. These are really awesome tips. I don't see enough patients with significant enough psoriasis to necessarily consider all these things, but I'm going to keep this all in mind. I appreciate it. And I, I know that our listeners do too. So thank you both. Just to close us out, I want to ask both of you if you had any final key points or take-home messages that you want to leave with our listeners. Let's start with you, Dr. Davis. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Lipoff. One thing that we haven't spoken about yet that I think is really important, and we touched on it a little bit, is that psoriasis can be very devastating for anyone, child or adult, and that it directly impacts someone's quality of life. And there's literature to support that mental health is of importance to children with psoriasis. We know that they have an increased level of anxiety and depression. They have more school truancy, and they have an increased use of mental health medications. And so it's important to address the child's psychosocial well-being and screen them to your comfort level with regards to if they're having bullying, if they're being shamed, and help them get resources. And I want to emphasize, as Dr. Mann did earlier, that it's not necessarily relevant 
or related to the body surface area. If it affects your face, if it affects your hands, if you're a sexually active adolescent and it affects your genitalia area, or you just happen to be kind of a reserved per person and you just have a couple of patches that are visible that you can't cover up with clothes or the rest of your friends go to a pool party or a birthday party and you're reluctant to wear your swimsuit or people won't touch you because they think that you're contagious. That can be really devastating for adults, but you can imagine on a developing human that it's very devastating for children. And oftentimes there's a lot of guilt and blame of the child themselves or between the parent and the child. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to the mental health of the child and the family. Very well said, Dr. Davis. I will echo those comments. I think assessing the impact of the psoriasis on the child's life is so critical and and that it's important to think about how those questions might differ in a school-aged child versus a middle schooler, a preteen, and then a teenager or young adult. And I sort of think there's been a change when we, in our approach to treating a condition like acne, where we maybe used to wait to see the scarring and then start Accutane. And I think many of us, as Dr. Davis suggested, I'm the same way. The goal is to start the Accutane before the scarring is there. And it should be the same for psoriasis. So we don't want to wait until a child is anxious and socially excluded and feeling guilty to then start a systemic treatment. We want to start those treatments to preserve a healthy self-image and self-confidence in our pediatric patients and just recognizing that childhood and adolescence are challenging times socially for kids as it is, and that having that added factor, particularly for children whose psoriasis is visible to others, can really just be so challenging, and that we can make a tremendous difference in the lives of our patients if we're willing to advocate for them and treat them assertively so that psoriasis does not affect their their psychosocial development as they get older. Very well put, Dr. Mann. I think that's a really great place to end on, to, to thinking about the psychosocial impact on our pediatric patients. I want to thank both of you, Dr. Don Davis and Dr. Julianne Mann, for taking the time to give us such a comprehensive conversation in such a short time. I, I really think we could have gone even a lot deeper and longer, but our, our time is limited. I want to urge all our listeners to try to check out and read the, the guidelines that were published in JAD, officially January 2020. So thank you very much. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff. It's been a pleasure talking to you both, and we'll welcome you back next time to Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.